good evening. Thank you. Uh, so, Raymond was very happy to point out that we just sang a song with the phrase Crimson Tide in it, which if you know, uh, you know college football, you know that he's an Alabama fan. If you're here this morning, you know I'm an Auburn graduate, which is a difference. Um, but I would just like to say, as I'm pulling this up on my computer, that uh, there's a reason that the sky is blue and the sun is orange, and it's not because God is an Alabama fan. So, you know, um, this isn't a lecture about your football loyalties, but it should be. Okay, so uh, tonight I want to walk through just the basics of <clears throat> the descent doctrine. And when, when I say the basics, um, this, this lecture that I'm going to give follows the broad outline of the book uh, that Raymond just passed out here um, to a couple of you. But, you know, if you want to dig in more, you can dig in more on any of the areas that we're going to discuss. But um, I think what I would like to do tonight is just give us a broad outline of what the descent doctrine is <coughs> and show you some key points biblically, historically, theologically, and pastorally. And then we'll have a time of Q&A, and you, know, you can dive in in more detail on any of the stuff that I'm going to talk about tonight. This is going to be a sort of a 30,000-foot view here. Um, if you want to dig in more, of course, the book, I dig into a lot of this stuff, but there are other resources I can point you to that will help as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a... I'm a pastor. I'm an ordained minister of the gospel. I have taught for a decade in the classroom. I have five little kids. I'm used to people interrupting me and asking me questions. So we will have a Q&A time at the end. But if any of you feel compelled to just go ahead and raise your hand and ask a question, you're not going to, you know, offend me or bother me. I, you know, I'm happy to do that. So. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, oh, my mic's not on. Now is it? So that, that means you didn't record anything I said about Alabama and Auburn? <laughs> okay, so you get, okay, no, all right. So um, what we're going to talk about uh, very briefly is I, I just want to mention some things about creeds and confessions and, and what that means. Uh, some of you may have grown up Baptist or, or non-denominational. Some of you may not have grown up in church at all, but if, if you grew up Baptist or non-denominational, the likelihood is that you are unfamiliar with creeds and confessions, and that if you are familiar with them, you think that's for, that, you know, that's for Catholics, or um, we believe the Bible, not creeds. Uh, these are all things that, that I grew up hearing. Um, and so I just want to start out with just a, a few comments about creeds. So we read this morning, if you were here for the service, we read the Apostles' Creed, and one of the lines in the Apostles' Creed in our topic of conversation tonight is the line, he descended into hell, or he descended to hell. And so, you know, there are a number of evangelicals, a number of theologians who say we shouldn't even have that line in the creed. And so what I want to start with is, is how should we think about, and is that showing up okay for you guys? Okay. Um, so what I want to start with is this question, should we even say that line in the creed? Well, we did this morning, so if we shouldn't, out of luck. Um, so, 
should we say he descended into hell or he descended to the dead in the creed? Um, <clears throat> you know, there's a, there's a way of thinking about creeds and confessions where, and especially the three ecumenical creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and um, the, the Athanasian Creed, there's a way of thinking about those things where we want to say that they're subject to Scripture, which is true. Um, any, any statement by any person about theology is always ultimately subject to Scripture. Like, it always reports to Scripture. Scripture is the final authority. Um, but today, in today's environment, and really um, for a long time, we have this attitude that if I don't see something in the Bible, then I shouldn't be required to affirm it. Now, listen to how I'm going to say that again. If I can't prove it, then I'm not going to say it, and really, therefore, it's wrong. That's how we often treat creeds. Okay, yeah, a lot of people throughout the church have believed this, but I don't see that in Scripture. My favorite theologian who I read one book by doesn't see it in Scripture, so therefore, it must not be in Scripture. That's kind of the attitude that we, that we have a little bit about creeds sometimes. Now, maybe that's not true here in this area of the country, but it's certainly true in the South, where I'm from. Um, it's certainly true a lot in a lot of American churches. And so what I want to point out first, very briefly, is that when we say the creeds have authority, when we say that um, reciting the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed, uh, when we recite those things and we say, we believe, and we say, this has authority over what we believe, we're not saying that it's equal to Scripture, okay? So I want to be very clear before I even say anything else about the descent. The, the creeds themselves are not equal to or over, certainly not over, the Bible, okay? There is only one final supreme authority for what Christians believe and practice, and it is the Holy Word of God. That's it, okay? But God has given us um, ministers of scriptural authority. In other words, he's given ways to teach his church what to believe that's taught in the Bible. And the simple analogy here is to a sermon on Sunday morning. If Raymond preaches a sermon on Sunday morning that's faithful to the text, it's authoritative. It's not scripture itself, but he's proclaiming the word of God with authority, precisely because he's proclaiming what the word of God says. Okay, so the same thing is true of confessions, same thing is true of theology books, the same thing is true of councils and creeds. If, if and so long as they are faithful to the Bible, they're serving as faithful authorities about what the Bible teaches. With creeds, we're talking about three statements that have stood the test of millennia in terms of what Christians confess. So again, I want to go back to that statement about how we normally treat creeds and confessions. If I don't see it in my reading of my Bible, then all these billions of Christians that believed it must be wrong. Do you hear that? Now look, there are times when, and I want to be very clear, there are times when God raises up a leader to point out ways in which the church has erred doctrinally, like Martin Luther. But Martin Luther wasn't alone. 
He was alone when he nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, but he wasn't alone for very long. God raised up other people to affirm, yes, the church has departed from faithful doctrine in this respect. Okay, that's not the same thing as me in the coffee shop opening up my New Testament and going, man, I don't see, you know, this line in the creed anywhere here, so therefore the creeds are wrong. Those are, do you, do you kind of feel the difference between those two things? Okay, so, you know, what I want you to hear very clearly is that I affirm wholeheartedly, absolutely, 100% sola scriptura. That is, Scripture alone is the final authority for faith and practice for all Christians. Period. What's in the Bible is what we believe, and if it's not in the Bible, we don't believe it. Is that clear enough? Okay. Um, he has, God has also given us ministers of that Word to teach it. And creeds are a minister of the Word in that respect. They teach what's in the Bible. And listen, if a creed has a line in it that's not in the Bible, then we throw it out. But there aren't lines like that in the creeds. Uh, so what I want to do tonight is I want to show you how um, these creeds, and especially the line, he descended into the, into the dead, how this creedal line is a faithful summary of Scripture's teaching. Because if it's not, then we don't need to say it. But if it is, then we confess it with, with gladness. Um, the, I just want to point out a couple of things here uh, as well. Um, a lot of times when we have this stance about the creeds, it's because we take the line from Paul where he says, be a Berean. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody familiar with that line? Paul says to the Bereans, hey, go search the Scriptures for yourselves and see if what I'm teaching you is true. Um, and we often take that as the impulse is, okay, I have to go prove everything that you just said, whoever you is, in my reading. Now think about that for a minute. If that's what Paul meant, he meant that theoretically the Bereans could go and find out that Paul was wrong. Do you think Paul was telling them, prove me wrong, like I, I actually could be wrong here? Was Paul uncertain about what he was teaching? Did he think the Bereans were going to find an argument that would overthrow his belief that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world? No. He's telling them, I can't compel you to believe, but you should go look for yourself. Okay, so we need to be very careful about how we treat um, statements of the church that have been believed throughout space and time we, we, can go, we need to go search the Scriptures for ourselves because nobody can compel us to believe. But that's not the same thing as me thinking that, you know, I'm the next Martin Luther and can overturn the entire church. Those are two different things. Um, so the impulse instead should be this third thing on the slide, which is to go search the biblical fields again. If billions of Christians have affirmed something throughout space and time for millennia across the globe, and you think, man, I just don't see this in the Bible. Then okay, let's go back and search the fields again. That's the impulse. It's a, it's a very modern American thing to think that me, myself, and I am the authority. Instead of being humble, asking myself, how can I go back and look again at the Scriptures? What, what did other people say they saw in the Bible 
about this or that doctrine. So with respect to the dissent, what does the Bible actually say? How did other people read in the Bible the dissent? Okay, and so just to be very clear, if you're, not, if, you're not, uh, if you're still confused about what I mean by he descended into hell up here, I'm going to give you a definition a little bit later. But very quickly, before I move on, this is just a line in the creed that affirms that Jesus, between his death and resurrection, went to the place of the dead. He, had a human soul, he has a human soul, and according to his human soul, he went to where all the dead go. That's, what, that's the basic affirmation of he descended into hell or he descended to the dead. I'm, no, I'm, I'm such a professor that I want to ask for questions. Can I do that right now? You guys have comments or questions so far? You have thoughts about that? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm going to answer you and also not answer you. So w- w- what I mean is grave and disembodied soul intermediate state. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion around the term hell, and there's reasons why we have a problem with this phrase, but we're going to come back to that. So just to very briefly answer your question, when I say he descended to the dead or he descended into hell, I mean Jesus experienced death as every human does. His body's interred, his soul departs to the place of the dead. But we'll, we'll come back to both of those things. Okay, so... We're going to return to the biblical fields. We're going to search the fields again for the treasure here that's in the creed. How is this line supported, taught by the Bible? So we're going to spend quite a bit of time here. That's that's where I want to spend a lot of our time. Um, We're going to come back to, just in case anybody is a history buff in here, we are going to talk through the history of this line um, a little bit later. But I do, you know, it's important for me in a church that's centered on the ministry of the Word and in broadly, with evangelicals who put so much right emphasis on the authority of the Bible, I think we need to start with the Bible. So we're going to start with the Bible, and then we'll come back to uh, some history later on. Okay, I realize that font is kind of small. Um, sorry for those of you who are in the back who are having a hard time. Um, so we want to start with the biblical data. Sorry about that. Um, and <clears throat> before we jump into the descent in particular, I think it's important to understand what the Bible teaches about death. Okay, so before we even jump into the descent in particular, what does the Bible teach about death in general? Um, and, and I have up here both Old Testament and New Testament, so OTNT, but in the middle of those, uh, surrounding those, are some, some context, some historical context for what Israel and then the church were dealing with as they articulated what they believed about death. So I'm going to start with kind of the background for the Old Testament. In the ancient Near East, um, there's a lot of wild stuff going on with death. So if you, go, if you study ancient Near Eastern views on what happens when you die, a lot of different stuff going on. I'm not going to go through all of it. The Egyptians thought it was like a big, I mean, it was like a big maze that you could never solve and you were always getting more and more dead in it. Like it was really crazy. Um, you know, the Assyrians tried to feed the dead through holes in their floor in their house. Um, there's a number of other, you know, the Babylonians had some views uh, that, that are more, a little bit more similar to Israel. But the, the point I want you to hear on this first little uh, bullet point is 
everybody in the ancient world believed that there was an, an afterlife. That was just, that was just common, common fare. Everybody believed that after you die, you still exist. Now, it was not a good existence. It wasn't fun. Like, imagine your worst nightmare where somebody's chasing you around a maze and there's fire and, you know, swords and people eating other people. Okay, that's what happens when you die in Egypt. Not, not fun. For the Assyrians, for, the, for uh, some of the earlier Mesopotamians, it was just like dusty netherworld kind of situation. It wasn't nothing, I mean, that's better than the Egyptian stuff, but like it wasn't pleasant. So when we get to the Old Testament, um, we find that, and this is going to be true in the New Testament as well, when we get to the Old Testament, we read about what happens at death. Um, we find some, some commonality with the rest of the ancient Near East. So, for instance, Isaiah chapter 14 describes especially the king of Babylon going down to the place of the dead. Um, and in that description, it's dusty, it's sleepy, it's forgetful. So we, we find commonality with what other people were saying after uh, what other cultures were saying about death. Um, and, and that's important for you to hear. You, you know, you may not realize this, but um, today in, in theology, a lot of people don't want to believe in, in an intermediate state. They think you just die, and then somehow we're transported to the resurrection of the dead. And you don't exist in between. Because today... People don't want to believe that you have a soul. Or that you, that you have a soul, but it's just your body. And when your body dies, you don't exist. When you're raised from the dead, there you exist again. Okay, so some of this, you're like, okay, we get it. There's an afterlife. For a lot of people, that's a struggle. Um, and maybe you're in, um, maybe you're in a, a field related to biology, to, um, to neuroscience, um, in your fields, there's a lot of studies, especially philosophical studies, that say people just don't exist when they die. Okay, in contrast to that, so I wanted you to hear that, in contrast to that, in the Old Testament, it does affirm that you still exist after you die. So you may not have encountered that view, maybe you're not in the neuroscience or biology fields, um, but there are people today, lots of people today, who are Christians, but also there are atheists, obviously, who believe you just don't exist after you die. For an atheist, you don't exist ever again. For somebody who believes in the resurrection, you don't exist until the resurrection happens. Okay, so that's a popular belief today, actually. And instead of that, the Old Testament, like in Isaiah 14, affirms there is an afterlife. Their souls still exist after you die. Now, in the Old Testament... The, the term that's used for where you go when you die is Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, Sheol. And Sheol in the Old Testament is mostly described as just the general place of the dead. All the dead go to the place of the dead. There's not a lot of differentiation between righteous and unrighteous, although there is some of that later on in the Old Testament. It's just, if you're dead, you're dead, and you go here. 
It's described as under the earth, because of course when you're buried, you go under the earth. It's described as dusty, because graves are dusty. It's described as dark, because graves are dark. It's described as um, apart from the land of the living, because of course it's not in the land of the living. But the point is, the Old Testament has language for an afterlife, life after death. And later on in the Old Testament, that belief is connected to and really grows into the belief that God would raise the dead. So resurrection is throughout the Old Testament, but later on in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, like in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 36 and 37 and Daniel 12, the Israelites begin to explicitly say things like, the dead will be raised. Now, what that's communicating is something very specific and important theologically that we're going to keep coming back to, and it's this, that God is king everywhere, including enemy territory. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is king, not just of Israel, but of every kingdom. That was a, that was a statement that the Israelites wanted to make over and over again in the Old Testament. And, and, and you, need to, you need to think about this with me for just a second. In the, ancient Near, in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, gods were territorial. Edom had territorial gods that were just for Edom. Assyria had territorial gods that were just for ter- Assyria, uh, Assyria. The Babylonians, same thing. The Moabites, <clears throat> you have territorial gods. The claim of Israel is that Yahweh is not territorial. He is the God of the universe, not just of this strip of land on the Mediterranean. That's the claim throughout the entire Old Testament that Yahweh is king everywhere, not just in Israel. Including in the kingdom that is most at odds with Yahweh, which is the kingdom of death. Yahweh is still king there, which means that Yahweh alone can destroy that kingdom and can rescue those enslaved in that kingdom. That is, Yahweh alone can bring the dead back to life. For everybody else, death is sleepy, dusty, forgetful. Everybody goes there. Israel's saying, yeah, that's true. But the difference is this, your God can't do anything about it because he's not a God, he's an idol. Our God is king over that land and can rescue its people and will one day in the Messiah. Okay, so we'll come back to all that, I think, obviously. Um, but for now, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, one more thing about uh, the Old Testament, I'll just point you to a couple verses. Genesis 49, verse 33 and Genesis 50, verse 14. Um, those two verses talk about first uh, Isaac in 49 and then Jacob in 50 being gathered to their fathers. Okay, so um, we often think about that just as burial. Okay, they were also, uh, you know, basically put in the same grave is, is how we think about that. The problem is in Genesis 50, it says that about Jacob before he's buried. So he's gathered to his fathers before he's put in the grave. So that's communicating something about Jacob that's true even before his body is buried. Namely, he's with his, he's with his fathers because he's in the intermediate state. Okay, so moving on uh, to the 
background of the New Testament. Uh, I won't say much about the Greco-Roman view. If you've read Greek mythology, Roman mythology, you're probably pretty familiar with it. Just go, I mean, don't go do this, but because they're not very good, but like read Percy Jackson, you know, like you'll, 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 you'll get it. Um, and the place of the dead is again this not very great, dark, sleepy, wispy place. Some people are tormented there. Most people just mill around. That kind of thing. Um, you, can, you can go down there. So there are a number of people, and this is important, there are a number of Greek mythological figures and Roman mythological figures that go down to the place of the dead. But can they bring up who they went down to get? No. Right? Orpheus goes down, fails. Odysseus goes down, he just looks around a little bit and comes back. No, no, nobody can actually do anything down there but go and look. In uh, the more important background to the New Testament is Second Temple Judaism. So this is uh, Jewish life and faith that grew up around uh, during the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years or so. And in Second Temple Judaism, what you, what you have is a combination of what we just said about the Old Testament view of death, where everybody goes to this one place of the dead, Sheol, and then the belief that some of those would be raised to new life and some would be raised to judgment. So that's Daniel 12. In Daniel 12, uh, Yahweh reads the book of life, and those who are in the book of life are raised to life. Those who are not in the book of life are raised to judgment, damnation. Um, what Second Temple Judaism does is it begins to show how those two things are connected. And namely in this way, and I wish I had a graph I could show you, but I'm not very good at computer stuff. So... Um, you just going to have to use my hand motions. Uh, so what, what happens in Second Temple Judaism is they begin to parse out this difference between what happens to the righteous dead when they die and what happens to the unrighteous dead when they die. So remember Daniel 12, the righteous will be raised to life, the unrighteous will be raised to damnation. Okay, well, if that's true, that there's a difference in the end for the righteous and the unrighteous, then they must, they must be able to be differentiated in the place of the dead. And so, uh, in, during Second Temple Judaism, you have this differentiation between the righteous compartment of the place of the dead and the unrighteous compartment of the place of the dead. Um, let me see if I can pull this up real fast. I've got... Sorry if I'm giving anybody motion sickness. Um, I'm scrolling through the PDF, not even corrected version of my book. Uh, and I've got a graph up here somewhere that I think will help. Maybe not. Maybe we're all just going to throw up together. Um, ah, okay. So... This is, uh, this is the general sense of what I was just saying, that um, in the ancient world you have the heavens, the earth, and then the underworld, and the underworld is where everybody goes. So that's that kind of shale, everybody's here, everybody dies, goes down. <clears throat> what happens in Second Temple Judaism is uh, you begin to have this differentiation, and let me see if I can get this, that didn't do what I wanted to do. 
Um, let me do this. So you have this differentiation between um, the place of the righteous dead, the place of the unrighteous dead, and uh, prison for fallen angels. So you're going to see in your New Testament all of these terms. Because the New Testament is written during Second Temple Judaism. So what happens is they take that big general place of the dead and they start to say, all right, if everybody's coming out on the other side of this, distinguished between righteous and unrighteous, then surely they're distinguished between righteous and unrighteous while they're in the place of the dead. So paradise is one term that's used for the righteous compartment. So if you die and you're faithful, that is, you have expressed faith in Yahweh, you've turned from your sins, Second Temple Judaism says you end up in paradise. Another term that's used for that is Abraham's bosom. <clears throat> the unrighteous dead end up in, we would be most familiar probably with the term Gehenna in the New Testament. We, we associate that with torment. Um, but the word Sheol and the word Hades um, can refer specifically to that compartment for the unrighteous dead. And then there's a third tier there at the bottom, Tartarus, which is a, a term that's used in Peter's letters in the New Testament to refer to the prison for fallen angels. So this is what the view of death was immediately prior to and during the writing of the New Testament. So when we talk about the New Testament view of death, we find that, and I'll just come back over here, we find that um, the New Testament uses that language to talk about death. So the easiest place to go, first of all, is Luke 16. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke 16. <clears throat> Luke 16 is lots of parables, including... the one that we want to talk about today. Rich man and Lazarus, verse 19. So listen, listen to this and have in mind the graph you just saw. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Sounds great. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Not great who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores, which is really gross. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. All right, so I just want you to see, already, you have language of Lazarus, who is a righteous man, ending up in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man who is unrighteous ending up in Hades. But notice, notice what happens next. Um, in verse 24, and he called out. First of all, by the way, already in verse 23 that I read, he can see Lazarus. Then in verse 24, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. So he can see Lazarus. He can see Abraham. He can talk to both of them. 
But he says in verse 25, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is com- uh, comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So what we see here is very simply the whole place of the dead with a distinction between the place for the righteous dead and the place for the unrighteous dead. Okay? So that, that's the view of death that was held in the New Testament. Another example of that terminology that I use in that graph is also in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Uh, and I, I, you, you can turn there if you want, but verse 43 very briefly says, Today, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me where? In paradise. That was a term that referred to the righteous place of the dead in Second Temple Judaism. So I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit. But what I want you to hear is very simply this, that in the Bible, the Bible teaches that at death, your body and soul are separated, your body is buried, and your soul departs to the place of the dead. In the place of the dead are all the dead, but there's a difference between the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. Okay, that, that's as simple as I can put it. That, was in, that, that held in common with these other backgrounds that everybody dies and everybody goes to the place of the dead. It has some commonality with Greco-Roman belief about differentiating between kinds of dead. But it's really a statement about Yahweh and His faithfulness. That Yahweh is faithful to the righteous even in death, and when He comes in the person of His Son as the Messiah of Israel, He's going to be faithful to the righteous dead by raising them up from the dead. That's really what we're talking about. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause there and um, let you drink from the fire hydrant for a second. Because then what we want to do is see how Jesus enters into that, um, that concept. And, and when I was working on this uh, presentation, you know, I thought, there's probably not going to be a lot of people in the room that don't believe that your body and soul are separated at death and that there's an afterlife. But I think your pastor would, would agree, and um, as I've told you, there's, some, there's a lot of conversation in other fields, scientific fields. Today, in biblical scholarship and in science, the idea that your soul continues to exist after your body dies, not a lot of people are holding that. And so it's important for us to lay this groundwork, first of all, because we want to believe what the Bible believes, not just what you know, contemporary scholars tell us whatever that might be. But second of all, because it's important for us to understand what death is in the Bible so that we can see how Jesus addresses it. Death in the Bible, and, and here, here's maybe a, a, a way to put it that will connect. Death in the Bible is a prison. Death in the Bible is a prison that ensnares everyone. It's talked about as a prison, but also as like a glutton, like death just is getting everybody in its maw. Death is a prison and a glutton that's inescapable. It's for everyone. Nobody can, nobody can come out. 
That's what death is. That, that's a view of death that was held by almost every human being on the planet at that point. Death is for everyone. Death is inescapable. Death is a prison. No one can defeat death. But here comes Yahweh saying, I'm king. I'm king over everything, including this unassailable realm of death. And one day, I'm going to break down its doors and bring out my people. I mean, do you, like, think about, just think about that in relation to the Exodus for just a second. In the Exodus, you have an unassailable foe, Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. You have a king who won't let God's people go. And so what does God do? God comes in the midst of that kingdom and breaks the doors down through the death of the firstborn son and the blood of the lamb and brings his people out. That's what he's promising to do in the Old Testament. He's saying, Pharaoh, you're not king here. I am. Satan, you're not king over the place of the dead. I am. And that's when Jesus enters the scene. So there are some specific biblical texts where we point, that we point to to talk about Jesus descending to the place of the dead. One of those is the sermon that I preached this morning, Matthew 12, 38 through 42. I'll, I'll just very briefly mention this because many of you are here this morning. Um, but essentially what Jesus says in this passage is that just as Jonah went to a place like the place of the dead and came back three days later, Jesus is actually going to the place of the dead and rising victorious three days later. Jesus affirms in Matthew 12, 38 through 42 that um, he's greater than Jonah. He's giving the prophets this sign of Jonah, which is that he's going to enter into death and come out the victor. Another passage related to Jesus going to the place of the dead is Acts chapter 2, verse 31. I'll go a little bit slower now, so if you want to turn um, to Acts chapter 2. I already mentioned Luke 23. Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 31. I'm sorry, verse 31. Did I say 41? Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 31. Um, he foresaw and spoke about, he's talking about David. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That is a quote of Psalm uh, 16, verses 8 through 11 where David prophesies about the Holy One of God not being abandoned to Hades or, having, or his flesh seeing corruption. Now notice the distinction there. His, his life, his soul is not abandoned to Hades, the place of the dead. That is, God doesn't leave him there. His flesh doesn't see corruption. That is, he's not in the grave long enough for his body to decay. So we see there that in Psalm 16, which is a prophecy about the Messiah, David is prophesying that both of those things about death, soul and body, 
will not last for the Messiah. His soul will not be left in Hades. His body will not be left in the grave because God will raise him from the dead. And in Acts 2, Peter quotes that about Jesus. Jesus' body was not left in the grave to see corruption and His soul was not left in Hades in the prison of death. God raised Him from the dead on the third day rather than leaving Him there to rot, essentially. Next passage is Romans 10, verse 7. And I'm going I'm to have to pick up the pace here. Uh, I didn't realize I was talking this much. Uh, Romans 10, verse 7. Romans 10, 7. So, uh, in Romans 10, Paul is talking about the salvation of Israel and the Gentiles, and uh, he quotes Deuteronomy here. Uh, He says, and I'll start in verse 6, because that's the beginning of the sentence. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14. And in Deuteronomy 30, that phrase, uh, who will descend into the abyss, um, is followed by, that is, to bring Christ up from the, uh, it's essentially from beyond the sea, is how it reads in, in Deuteronomy. Here's what I need you to hear very quickly. In the Old Testament, Beyond the sea was the place of the dead. Under the earth, place of the dead. So descending into the pit, into the abyss, going beyond the sea, that's where the dead are. So Paul saying, who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead is a direct reference to Jesus being in the place of the dead. Period. Jesus goes to the place of the dead. And, I, I, you know, <clears throat> after, um, I'm going to mention uh, Philippians 2 probably a bit later, but I would say, just, just so you hear me for just a second, in Matthew 12, Acts chapter 2, and here in Romans 10, the affirmation is very simply this. Jesus experiences death like all humans do. That is, his body is buried and his soul goes to the place of the dead. So if you want to talk about why you should affirm the descent, there's your baseline. That line in the creed is saying at a basic level what the Bible affirms, which is that Jesus, according to his human nature, his body is buried, his soul departs to the place of the dead. He experiences death like every human being does, which is what we talked a bit about this morning in terms of comfort. But Amen. But there's more than that. There's more than that to the descent doctrine. So the rest of these passages... um, are, are more than that. I'm not going to go in uh, canonical order here. I'm going to skip around a little bit. So first of all, I want us to look at um, Revelation 1 and then also Philippians 2 in, in relation to that. So turn first to Revelation 1, uh, verse 18. Uh, and actually, I'll, I'll start again in verse 17. John has just seen Jesus, the risen Jesus, the ascended Lord Jesus, and when, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive for more. And listen, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
That statement right there, I have the keys of death and Hades, in Greek is a possessive genitive. That means that Jesus has taken what formerly belonged to death and Hades, and he now owns those keys. What that implies, what that states, is that Jesus went and got them. Jesus went into the kingdom of death and Hades, took the keys, and came back out. And this is why, and this is why I was going to read this in in relation to Philippians 2, uh, and I won't ask you to turn there just so we're not flipping back and forth, but in Philippians 2, remember what Paul says. He says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Why? Because Jesus is King. Not just in heaven and not just on earth, but also under the earth as well because He possesses, He has, He has taken the keys of death and Hades. So the first, and I'm going to summarize the the dissent belief in just a second, but I'm just going to keep repeating myself because, I mean, repetition. But um, Acts 2, uh, Matthew 12, Luke uh, 23, Romans 10, Jesus experiences death like all humans do. His body is buried, his soul departs to the place of the dead. Revelation 1 Philippians 2, not only does he experience death as we do, but he conquers death for us. He is king in the land of the dead. That's the second thing that the descent doctrine affirms. Not, not only does Jesus experience it, but he's king over it. Third thing that we see about the descent is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9. So if you do want to turn there, that would be great. General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, I don't know why that was the thing in my house, but that's how we learned the order of those verses or those books. Um, has anybody ever heard that before? I'm just curious. Okay, all right, fine. I, I had no idea what you just said. All right, so... <laughs> I'm sure it was good, though. Uh, Ephesians 4, um, uh, Paul is talking about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and all. So God is one, salvation is one. Verse 7, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and then he starts quoting Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So here's what Paul says, that Jesus descended to the lower regions of the earth. Now I don't have time to go into all the details. If you guys want to ask questions later, that's great. Um, In Ephesians 4, he is quoting and alluding to a number of Old Testament passages in the, in the phrases he uses right here, including Psalm 68, all of which talk about the descent part of that quote as descending to the place of the dead. In the Old Testament background to this passage, the descent is the place of the dead. 
So Paul isn't just talking about descending to the earth in the incarnation. He's talking about going to the lower regions of the earth. That is, the place of the dead. Now, why wouldn't he call that under the earth like he does in Philippians? Well, because in Ephesians, Paul has a two-tiered universe, heaven and earth. Everything in heaven and everything on earth has been reconciled to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. So that when he has to talk about the place of the dead, he's got to talk about it in relation to that second tier of the earth, lower regions of the earth. But what does he do? And this is, I mean, so this is affirming all that we've already said. But what, it, what else is affirming is in verse, uh, verse 8. So he goes down, he descends in verse 9, but when he ascends on high, what does he do? He leads a host of captives. Here's the third thing that I want you to hear. The descent clause affirms that in the descent and then resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Jesus releases the righteous dead from the prison of death. Now, this is just saying that he's going to raise us to new life, which we all believe as Christians. But I want you to think about this for a minute. Um, In the Old Testament, that is, before Jesus came, so before Jesus comes, there are faithful Israelites. Those faithful Israelites are in the place of the dead. They're in the righteous compartment. They're not being tormented. Abraham's bosom from Luke 16. You guys tracking with me? So Lazarus is in in Abraham's bosom. Why is he there? Because he's righteous. Why is he righteous? Because he believes in Yahweh and that Yahweh's going to send his Messiah to save Israel. What hasn't happened yet for La- in, in Lazarus' time? The Messiah hasn't come and died the death that we all deserve and risen from the dead. The Old Testament saints are waiting on their Messiah, but they're not waiting now. That's what Ephesians is talking about when it says he led a a host of captives. It's not saying that he's taken people from torment to paradise. It's saying that those who are in paradise but waiting are now in paradise but in the presence of the risen Lord that they were waiting for before he came. So the third thing that the descent affirms is that there is a release of the righteous dead. And then finally, 2 Peter 3, verse 18, if you want to turn there. Uh, this is a pretty hotly contested, uh, 1 Peter, sorry, I put 2 Peter on the slide, it's 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3.18, um, this is a hotly contested verse in a number of ways, but uh, I'm not going to talk about any of that. Verse 18, uh, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. This is the the fourth affirmation of the descent, that in Christ's descent to the dead, he proclaims his victory to all the dead. Now, if we were to go back to that chart that I showed you earlier, we've got the righteous dead, the unrighteous dead, and the angels in prison. Okay, this, this verse right here, uh, when it says uh, in verse 19, the spirits in prison is referring most likely to that third tier, Tartarus, evil angels. But think about, again, think about Luke 16. Think about Lazarus and, and the rich man talking to each other across the chasm. Right? Jesus goes down to the place of the dead. He's in the righteous compartment. Today I will be with you in paradise. 
He's up here at the top. Abraham's bosom, paradise, everything is good. But he can also talk to and shout at everybody else in the place of the dead and say, hey, y'all, what's up? I win. That's what's happening here. Jesus is proclaiming, declaring the victory that he already won on the cross. He's not being tormented. He's not in the place that we call hell. He's not preaching a gospel sermon where people can respond. He's saying to the righteous that are already there, hey, I'm here. You've been waiting. Here I am. And he's saying to the unrighteous who had no faith in him and still don't, hey, guess what? Your rebellion will cost you eternity because I've already won, and now I sit in judgment. That's what he's saying in the descent. Okay, so to summarize that, well, I'm going to skip that because we're running out of time. Uh, and I can, this is super small, and I'm going to apologize. Um, you know what? Don't even look at that. Just, just avert your eyes for a second. Because um, <laughs> I, I want to, I, I don't want you to try to write all that down. Uh, I'd, rather you, I'd rather you hear me. Um, four things from the Bible that the descent affirms. Jesus experiences death as all humans do. Body is buried, his soul departs to the place of the dead. Matthew 12, Luke 23, Acts 2, Romans 10. Because he's not just fully human, but also fully God, in experiencing death, he conquers death. Revelation 1, Philippians 2. He's king under the earth. In his resurrection, and especially his ascension, he releases the Old Testament saints which doesn't mean that he preached a gospel sermon they responded to. It doesn't mean that they were being tormented and now they're not. It means that the hope that they had in the Messiah has finally appeared in real life. And fourth, in the descent, Jesus proclaims his victory, not just to the righteous dead, but to all the dead. What's up, everybody? I win. Okay? So that's the biblical data. Um, I do want to spend just a little bit of time um, and I want you to take a deep breath. Everybody take a deep breath. Okay. Does anybody have any super pressing questions they want to just ask right now before they forget? It's totally fine if you do. Okay. I don't know. You guys do like a rock, paper, scissors situation. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to answer your question at, by going through the historical data because part of the, I think a big part of the reason why people reject it is because there have been unbiblical additions to it. And so in rejecting those, they reject the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, I... Th the way that I put it in the book is they're using spatial language that is under the earth to describe a spiritual reality. So, you know, angels are the same way. Like, they're not, they're spirits. So their bodies aren't somewhere. They, they just exist, right? Um, it's the same thing with the dead. It's, it's a spiritual realm. So we have to use material physical, spatial language to describe that immaterial reality. Does that make sense? 
Sorry, those are that's probably too many big words. Um, spirits aren't physical; they're spiritual. So when we describe where they are, we have to use physical words to describe spiritual reality. I don't know if that helped. Maybe not. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't have a body. Yeah, but he's, he's you know. Yep, yep. It's physical language. Um, I don't want to call it a metaphor because this is real. Uh what happens to the dead is real. But it, in order to describe reality, we have to use images and pictures and, and concrete language to describe spiritual things. <clears throat> okay, so let me, let me spend just a few minutes um, talking about the historical data. Um, I need to, is it 15 minutes, Raymond? Is that about right? All right, I'll do my best. No more Auburn jokes. That's my problem. All right. Um, it's Alabama that's the joke. Okay, so uh, historical data. I just, I needed something on the recording. War Eagle. Uh, historical data. So in the early Christian view of Christ's ascent, you find what I just said. Um, victorious proclamation, conquering death in the grave, release of the righteous captives, um, and then implied with that, all of that, is that Jesus experiences death. That's that word vicarious. So he, he experiences these things with us and for us. So in the early Christian view, it, it's essentially just exactly what we've just said. Now there are some, um, well, I'll, I'll come back to that. It's exactly what we just said. The Apostles' Creed is affirming that early Christian view because the Apostles' Creed is written during the time when this would have been the view of the descent and not during the time of some of these problematic things that are going to happen that I'm going to talk about in just a second. So um, if you read about this phrase, you're going to find people going, oh, well, it's not in the earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed or it's only in some versions and not in others. The other thing you're going to find is that um, people are going to argue about the wording, which is this Latin here at the bottom that I'll explain in just a second. So some versions of the Apostles' Creed do not include the, the phrase, he descended to the dead. What, what they do include is he was buried. He died and was buried. Now, we just talked about views of death. So what do you think people assumed when they read he died and was buried? They assumed... He descended to the dead, right? And actually, Rufinus makes this comment, which is real, it's a really important fourth century um, guy named Rufinus, kind of cool name, better than some others that are around that time, but uh, Rufinus makes this comment that when the church confesses he died and was buried, they also confess he descended to the dead. And when they say he descended to the dead, they are also confessing he died and was buried. So the early church took those phrases synonymously. They didn't feel like they had to always include he descended to the dead. And, and we have people from that time period telling us that. So why then was it added explicitly? There's a big word on the screen that you probably can't see because I can barely read it that's called Apollinarianism. doesn't help that it's very long. Um, Apollinarianism, which is like Apollo plus Anarianism at the end, um, is a, a heresy of the ancient church 
or a heresy that the ancient church combated, I should say, that, and it's more complicated than this, but essentially it says that Jesus in the incarnation only takes on a human body and not a human soul. Um, some people have referred to it as God in a bod. Um, so it's kind of like God just drops into a human body, but he doesn't have a human soul to go along with that. Now, the problem with that is he has not assumed a fully human nature. Because you and I are not just bodies. We're also souls. And where, where does your decision-making capability come from? Where, where does your relationship with God happen? It's through your body, but in your soul. And if God has not redeemed your soul through becoming incarnate as a fully human being with a body and a soul, then you aren't redeemed. And so the ancient church wanted to combat the heresy of Apollinarianism. And what more perfect doctrine to do that, and what more perfect phrase to do that than to affirm that Jesus, in His human soul, descended to the place of the dead. So when you, when you look at the history of the creeds, of the Apostles' Creed, yes, there are times where you don't find it. You find it more often than not, but there are times when you don't find it. But the times when you find it most adamantly, explicitly defended and articulated are when the church is combating Apollinarianism. First at the, uh, in the 5th century and then later on in the 7th. Again, the ancient church viewed death in the same way that we talked about, and so he was buried was sufficient for them. He died and was buried, boom, we're done. But then this guy Apollinarius comes along and is like, okay, yeah, I affirm that. I'm good with the creeds. And the church is like, no, you're not, buddy. That, like, <laughs> we mean this. You mean that. And let's spell it out. So that, that's, uh, that's one thing to note on the creedal clause. I can answer more questions about that later if you have them. The other thing to point out about the Apostles' Creed is that sometimes in Latin, the line says, um, descensus ad inferos. I was very disappointed at the intern pastoral assistant lunch when I asked this question. How many of you have read Harry Potter? Okay, that's, that makes me feel a little bit better. Still not great, Raymond. Um, so, uh, in the sixth book of Harry Potter, sixth movie, uh, Harry and Dumbledore go to this cave where there are dead bodies all in the water, you know, which is really gross. I hate zombies. Like, I'm terrified of zombies. And so, that really messed me up. Um, so, what are they called? Does anybody remember? Inferi or Inferi? Yeah. So, Inferos just means dead, the dead in Latin. It doesn't mean zombies, it just it means the dead. Um, and in the creed, that was one way to say uh, the descent clause. He, he, uh, Christ descends ad inferos, to the dead. In Latin, another word for that is inferna. So you could also say he descended ad inferna, to the dead. Now, the problem is, later on in, in late medieval Latin, and basically through the modern period, what does inferna sound like to you? Inferno, infernal, fire, torment. Right? So, that's part of the reason why we translate it as he descended to hell, 
uh, even there, I, I don't even want to get into it. There's, there's a lot of issues there too. But um, Inferos and Inferna originally were synonymous when the creeds were written. And they just meant dead, dead people. Jesus went to go see the dead people. That's what it's affirming. Okay, so um, in terms of the history of the creed, uh, yes, there are some things to address, but they don't, they don't uh, mean that we shouldn't include it in our creed. So in terms of the views that later come up, and um, you know, there's a number of these that I'm going to have to fly through here, uh, the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox views of the descent add extra-biblical elements. Okay, and this is where we get into why people reject this today. The Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox views add extra-biblical elements to the descent. Um, the Roman Catholic view connects it to purgatory. Purgatory is not taught in the Bible. The descent clause is directly connected to purgatory in some sense in that Jesus actually opens up the way to purgatory. That's what they mean by release. So the limbo of the fathers that's in hell, in, like if you think of Dante's Inferno, that first circle of hell, Jesus opens the door to that so that he can go into purgatory. Okay? That's not in the Bible. Um, Eastern Orthodoxy actually universalizes the descent so that in, and this is really true of modern Eastern Orthodoxy, a lot of uh, theologians in, in Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, Eastern Orthodoxy universalizes it. That is, in the descent, Jesus rescues everybody. He empties hell. So that it's a, a kind of universalist view of salvation. That's also not taught in the Bible. Okay, so um, in the Reformation, when John Calvin writes on this clause, he, you know, he, he obviously is rejecting the Roman Catholic view here, especially with purgatory, which is right. But what Calvin does is he ends up rejecting sort of the whole thing, which is not great. And I know everybody, you know, likes John Calvin. Well, maybe here they do. But, um, you know, I like John Calvin too. He's a good theologian. Don't agree with him about everything. I certainly don't agree with him about this. Because what Calvin does is he, he, he doesn't want to go Roman Catholic with purgatory. And so instead, um, he says the descent didn't happen on Saturday and it's not victorious. Instead, Jesus descended into hell, that is, torment, on Good Friday on the cross by experiencing the wrath of God for us. Now, I'm going to say this really loud and really clear. I completely, wholeheartedly affirm that Jesus experienced the full wrath of God for sinners on the cross on Good Friday. Amen? Amen. That is not what the descent clause is referring to. Calvin pulls a bait and switch, essentially, with the descent. And so today, um, and this is a, number of, a reason a number of Reformed churches still say he descended into hell, is because that's what they mean by it. That's actually what the Heidelberg Catechism um, says about the descent. Which, again, I affirm the doctrine of penal substitution. Jesus took my place and bore the wrath that I deserve on the cross. Amen. But that's not what the descent is referring to. Luther is the closest reformer um, 
to maintain the historic view of the descent while rejecting those Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox issues. Um, he's, got some, he's got some weird Christology stuff going on that I'm not going to get into, but he's the closest. So Luther basically retains the ancient view. I don't agree with Luther about a lot, but I agree with him about this. Um, Post-Reformation, you find all of that kind of flowering out into various branches. Some people follow Calvin. Some people continue to hold the ancient view. Some people follow Luther. Some people are Roman Catholic, and so of course they're going to believe the Roman Catholic doctrine. Some people are Eastern Orthodox. And it just kind of splits off in a lot of different, in those five at least directions. John Calvin, um, if you go read the Presbyterian and Reformed Confessions of Faith, there are actually um, articles in, uh, like in the Westminster Larger Catechism, and I'd have to pull up the book and look at a footnote for a second to tell you which uh, question it is. But there are catechisms in the Presbyterian Church where they affirm basically what the ancient view was. So that doesn't disappear from the Reformed tradition, but Calvin's view, especially today, is dominant. Um, and then in, in the modern period, um, you have the continuation of all these. The two guys there at the bottom, Jürgen Moltmann and Hans, Hans Urs von Balthasar, do this really bizarre thing where they try to reverse the bait and switch of Calvin by putting the descent back on Saturday, but they pull penal substitution along with it. And so they say that Jesus was in hell on Saturday according to his divinity, which is really problematic, and being tormented by the Father, also very problematic. Okay, so... I mean, to come back to your question, sir, in the back, that's why. There are so many weird takes on this thing um, that people have a real problem with, the weird takes. But we've lost something with throwing the baby out with the bathwater, is what I want to say to you. Yes, there are, there are things to be rejected here, very clearly. But when we, when we reject an aberrant, erroneous, wrong view of a doctrine, we don't want to throw out the entire doctrine with it if the core of that doctrine is biblical. And it is. Okay, so I'm going to skip this um, summary slide for the sake of time and just talk very briefly um, about some theological and pastoral implications. Um, here, I'm only going to mention one of these for time's sake, and that's Christology. Um, the descent, again, is a great doctrine to combat Apollinarianism. And you might think, okay, who cares? I'm not a heretic. I don't want to be a heretic. So why does this matter to me? Well, I'm going to come back to that with pastoral implications. But for this one, um, for the doctrine of Christology, that is the doctrine of Christ, the descent demands that we affirm that Christ has a human body and a human soul. And here, here's what that means for you. Gregory of Nazianzus said, uh, a quote that might not resonate with you immediately, but this is what he said. He said, what is unassumed is unhealed. Listen, if Jesus doesn't take on a human soul along with a human body, then you and I are not healed. You and I are not redeemed. You and I cannot turn to God and turn away from sin. Because how do we do that? It's not in our body. I mean, it's through our body, but it's, through, it's in our soul 
that we turn from sin and turn to God. So the descent helps us affirm that Jesus takes on both a human body and a human soul, which means that we are healed in our whole person, not just part of it. We're not just raised from the dead with a still corrupted soul. We're raised from the dead with a redeemed soul and a raised body, an incorruptible body. We can come back to theological implications if you want to, but I'll leave it at that. Um, and I'll end with this, the pastoral implications. And I talked about a lot of this this morning, so, and I mentioned it here. Jesus is king. He's king over everything. He's king in heaven. He's king on the earth. He's king under the earth. He's king everywhere. There is no realm of creation over which Christ does not cry, mine. That's Abraham Kuyper. He actually says there's not one square inch. But realm, heaven, earth, under the earth. All of it's his. Jesus is king. And this, you know, I just think it's so easy for us to feel the weight of the powers and principalities of the world and think that they are insurmountable. But Jesus has gone into the strong man's house and bound him forever. That's not easy to feel in the moment when you are facing addiction and pain and suffering, but it is true. Jesus has gone before you. He has gone into the place of the dead and now has lit the way out with the light of His presence. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death is a statement made by Jesus as He goes through the valley so that He can now lead us through it as well. He's gone before us. And that means that when we die, He's with us. And we're with Him. Death no longer has any sting. Because Jesus has kicked the doors down. He's defeated the enemy. When we die, we're with Him. We're not waiting for Him. He's there. These are the things that the descent teaches us and that, that can help us as we think through our suffering, our loss, our grief. Okay, let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll have a Q&A time. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for what You've taught us about Your Son, Jesus, about what He's done for us. God, the most important thing that we can confess is that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. But in between that death and resurrection, we also confess that He descended to the place of the dead. And that in doing so, He conquered death, proclaimed His victory to all the dead, and now is seated at your right hand so that when we die, we are also in his presence. God, help us to take comfort in those, those facts. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, it, it, when I was growing up, <clears throat> here's how Holy Week went for us. We had, uh, and some of you who grew up in um, mainline backgrounds, may, this may I'm Roman Catholic, this may sound familiar. Um, Maundy Thursday, Lord's Supper, Good Friday, Good Friday service. 
Easter Sunday sunrise service. Okay, what are we missing? Uh, Easter egg hunts on Saturday, right? Uh, in, in the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions, they have an Easter vigil. And here's what happens in the Easter vigil. And I, this is the coolest thing, and I, want, I, like, I haven't gone because I'm like, I don't want to sit for three hours and listen to them talk about the Mass. But um, here's what happens. They sit in darkness and wait. Now, they do, a, they do an actual service, so they have, and it's actually most of the time when baptisms happen. So they do baptisms, they have a, a, an entire Mass, but then they wait in darkness until midnight when they flip on all the lights and start singing Hallelujah Chorus. And that, I mean, if there's one thing that I ever want to accomplish at my church, it's like, let's add that to the, to the Holy Week celebration. So you, you, you know, start, start planning, Raymond. Um, you got a few weeks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I tried to keep it as sort of simple as possible, but the reality is that in the Old Testament, Sheol and Hades often refer to the whole place of the dead, and so that's what is happening in Acts 2, Psalm 16. Um, in later on, especially in Second Temple Judaism, as we saw in Luke 16 with Lazarus and the rich man, Hades can be used more narrowly to just refer to the unrighteous. So it can be used both ways. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, am I on? Okay. First of all, thank you. This has been excellent. One of the chief problems I think that I hear being overcome in what you're describing has been that Jesus says to the thief on the cross, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." Mm -hmm. And we've never connected paradise to being the realm of the dead, but some other mm. place that's like mm. at the right hand of the Father or right. pleasant or heaven. Right. right. Can you just describe, so I guess I'm getting that clearly though, right? So like Lazarus, the guy with the sores, he's yep. in paradise. Paradise, Abraham's bosom. Can yep. you just talk for a few minutes or just a minute about where that comes to the fore as a descriptor in like Second Temple Judaism as like paradise and the place of the dead and what yeah. they envision yeah. by that term. Well, I mean, I, I think what's being communicated with both of those terms is that the righteous dead are in the presence of Yahweh and not being tormented. So, paradise is obviously a term that evokes the presence of God based on Genesis 1 and 2 and then the, the promises of Israel. Um, and then later on, new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. Um, so, using that term to describe the intermediate state is a way to say the dead are in the presence of Yahweh, even if it's not the final state. Um, yes, that's right. Yes, he's, he, I mean, he's, he's essentially affirming that this thief has saving faith. And so he's not going to be in the unrighteous compartment in Gehenna. He's in the righteous compartment, paradise, or Abraham's bosom. So Abraham's bosom, likewise, is a term that just communicates in the presence of Yahweh. Again, they're, they're still waiting before Jesus dies and rises from the dead. But after he rises from the dead, it's now referred to as the third heaven by Paul. You know, so, I mean, that, 
those three terms, paradise, Abraham's bosom, heaven, um, we can use synonymously. The first two are before, are used to refer to the righteous dead before Jesus rises, and heaven is used to refer to the righteous dead after he rises, but it's still the same thing. We're referring to the place of the righteous dead. Hey. Brother, thank you so much for coming down, by the way. I really appreciate that you were able to come and join us. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity because I noticed that one of the theological implications was the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And I wanted you to kind of expound on that a little further. Um, yeah. Because I was a little, really curious about that one, most especially. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, essentially, what I, what I talk about in the book in that regard is that Hans Urs von Balthasar and Jürgen Moltmann have a deficient view of the Trinity to posit that, or to, sorry, Professor at Church at, um, to, to say that the Son and the Father are somehow separated in the descent because the Son is being tormented, experiencing divine abandonment. That's not the classic view of the descent, and the classic view of the descent would see a, the unity of father and son in the descent and uh, of divine action more broadly. So it's um, the implication is really just classical Trinitarianism. God is one, three persons, but those persons aren't separate, you know, bo- characters on a board. Cool. One Thank God. you so much. Uh, I don't want to get away from the platform. In order to gain a friend, you must show yourself friendly. And uh, today we had an amazing day at my church today. We adopted a Muslim family, and they came to break bread with us, and the pastor gave them a tour of the church. And uh, today, in order to gain a friend, you must show yourself friendly. We adopted a Muslim family. They came and broke bread with us today. And seeing the children playing out the same toy, toy chest together, God is working in that family. And hopefully, you know, and pass the game toward the church and hope we could convert them to the right religion. Yeah. Amen. Well, we'll pray for them. Yes. In fact, let me pray for them right now. Uh, God, we pray for this family. Pray that they would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and repent of their sins and turn to him and him alone for salvation. Uh, we thank you for um, Ted's church that showed them hospitality, and we pray that that would bear fruit in their lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so um, in Revelation, we get kind of two glimpses. Um, well, at one point in Revelation, after one of the seals is broken, we get an image of the martyrs under the altar yeah. who are saying, how long, O Lord, before you avenge us kind of thing. Right. Um, I've read before that's kind of like a picture of them. They, they have, Obviously, they're dead, so they're kind of waiting for the new heavens and new earth as described in the end of Revelation where it's yep. they're with God. So how would you just – because earlier you said – um, the saints who died, like in the Old Testament times, were waiting for Christ to be crucified, died, and resurrected initially. So, so they're like kind of like. So, I guess my question is: There's that level of the intermediate state, and then would you say there's like a second level of the intermediate state, like saints who die now who go to heaven and then are awaiting the final resurrection? Like, how would you describe that? I guess. Is um, so, I think if I understand your question. Uh, very simply, I would say that the difference in the intermediate state 
for the righteous dead is only the difference between waiting on Jesus to get here and now he's here. Um, you know, in Revelation uh, 5, no, 6, in Revelation 6, um, you know, you've got two options there. One is those are just martyrs who are literally martyred for the faith, and that, that's a subgroup of the dead. The other option is that's a reference to all the righteous dead. Um, I'm not going to try to open a can of worms on how to read Revelation, so I'll leave it at that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> how you doing? How you doing? Um, I'm gonna go off the mark with this question, but what's your take? You haven't heard the question yet, so settle down. Um, what's your take? What's your take on a person who dies doesn't descend to heaven right away and doesn't go? to hell, but they live among us. Is there any truth to that? And if so, you know, elaborate a little bit on it. Uh, no, I don't think there are ghosts, I think is, is uh, what I would say. So there's, there's, not a, there's not a state that exists between you're either in the righteous compartment of the dead or the unrighteous compartment of the dead. That's it. Those are, those are the options for the dead. Um, to very briefly open a huge can of worms, I, say, I would say that ghosts, as we call them, are probably demons. So you can deal with that later. All right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so you said that uh, in the Old Testament times, um, Sheol was the single compartment for the dead, both the, the, the righteous and the unrighteous. Um, so I guess my, com my question is, was there any comfort for the righteous people in the Old Testament Testament time, if yeah. they all went to the same place. Yes. Um, so, the teaching about, like, the explicit biblical teaching about compartments doesn't happen until later, but there is still a distinction between the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead, even if it's not talked about as compartments throughout the Old Testament. And specifically, um, the hope that's given to the righteous dead is that one day Yahweh will rescue them from death. And so, that's not the hope of the unrighteous dead. That, that plays out later in Ezekiel Daniel with specific texts on resurrection. Um, but if you read the Psalms, Job, um, even in Genesis, there's this hope that the righteous, in Jonah that we read today, there's this hope that the righteous dead will cry out and God will raise them up. So, yes, there was still hope for the resurrection, I would say. What, was there a hope of paradise after the dead, or...? Yeah, I, I think that um, we have to be careful here to distinguish between our systematizing of the Bible's teaching and what an ancient Jewish person would have articulated. Um, but I do think that there is lots of talk in the Old Testament about Yahweh restoring His people to the land. And so, the land promises... Um, I would say, yes, reflect this hope for paradise, uh, new heavens, new earth. Now, in terms of, again, um, paradise as part of the intermediate state, I mean, I, you know, I don't know that, I mean, that, that, that kind of language develops in Second Temple Judaism to reflect the difference in hope of righteous and unrighteous. So, 
But if we're talking about paradise, new heavens, new earth, then yeah. Thank you. When, when believers die today, our souls will be with the Lord, but when will our bodies be re resurrected? Will that be at the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of our, our bodies in the eternal kingdom with Him? Yeah, so uh, in Revelation 20, when Jesus comes back, and I'm just going to say it the way that the text says it, and I, I'm not going to try to tell you which view to take, but after the description of the millennium in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 7, uh, uh, I'm not going to say what I think on this recording, but um, okay. Uh, <laughs> So, after the description of the millennium in verses 1 through 7 of Revelation 20, Jesus comes back on the white throne of judgment, and it is at that point that the dead, all the dead are raised. Uh, the righteous dead are raised to dwell with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. The unrighteous dead are raised to judgment in the lake of fire. So, yeah, it's at that point. Okay, so, in that, right now, just, just the souls are resurrected. Yes, until then... We're just souls, disembodied souls. Our bodies are buried or interred or cremated or, I mean, dealt with in some fashion. And our disembodied souls are with the Lord until that time. Yes. Now, I, you know, very quickly, I, I think it's important to say we're still in some sense connected to our bodies. Our bodies are just dead. Now, I don't mean connected like, you know, hovering over a location. I just mean there are bodies, even if our soul is in the place of the dead.